Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Friday, August the 26th, 2022. Uh, earlier today, I had a really interesting conversation with the doctor and novelist Anna DeForest. She has a new book out, A History of Present Illness, which in some ways, even if it's a piece of fiction, is a critique of the current state of the American medical industry. She's a palliative care physician in New York City. And she spoke to me alone outside a hospital. Uh, the conversation was anything but sad, but certainly her background was. And what she suggested was that American medicine, with its reliance on science, on certainty, on data, was very incapable of dealing with the great uncertainty, as she called it, the uncertainty of death. I thought of my conversation with DeForest in terms of the preparation I was making for my conversation right now with um, with the social scientist Dmitry Zagalatas. Uh, he has a new book out, uh, The Power of Ritual. Um, and I was looking at a TED um, a TED uh, talk he gave in in Athens in uh, 2016, full of pictures of remarkable drama of what we put ourselves through, perhaps uh, to explain the unthinkable, the unimaginable, uh, to explain stuff beyond science, walking on coals, putting, uh, putting, um, putting uh, enormous looking things through our cheeks in order to ritualize our being. As I said, uh, Demetrius has a new book out, Ritual, How Seemingly Senseless Acts Make Life Worth Living. It, it suggests perhaps that the American, Indo uh, the medical American medical industry might use ritual more. Um, Demetrius is joining us from Connecticut, where he teaches. Demetrius, um, coming back to my point about uh, my conversation with Anna DeForest, do you think there's an art ritual recognized in the American scientific community, particularly in the medical business, particularly when it comes to dying in hospitals in contemporary America? I think increasingly so. This certainly didn't used to be the case. Up until a few decades ago, uh, medical students were encouraged to be detached from their patients, to be uh, to, to bracket away any kind of emotion. Uh, but now we're recognizing that these cultural practices that have been around for thousands of years, they actually have specific things to offer the people who practice them. For example, in the, um, in the context of anatomy departments in the U.S. and around the world, they offer mortuary ceremonies. Uh, for for the body donors. And this comes with the realization that body donation is fundamentally important to the medical profession. To, to be able to cure the living, uh, medical doctors have to train on, on the dead. And yet there's a shortage of body donors. In order to, to encourage these donations, uh, anatomy departments around the world are trying to show potential body donors and their families that are, are they're treating those people, the donors, with respect and that they will they will have the opportunity uh, to bid farewell to their beloved ones uh, after the body donation. This is just one example. Other examples include the use of techniques like meditation to lower anxiety 
especially in cases when somebody's undergoing uh, treatment like chemotherapy, where uh, the immune response is very important and being stressed, uh, being stressed is a very uh, big problem for the person undergoing the treatment. As I said, your new book is just out, Ritual, How Seemingly Senseless Acts Make Life Worth Living. Um, I looked up ritual, of course, on Wikipedia. We found etymology, characteristics, various kinds of schools of thought about ritual. What does this word mean to you? You've spent many years studying it. You've traveled around the world. You've been to many countries. You've written a number of white papers on it. You're head of a lab at your university in Connecticut. What exactly is ritual, Demetrius? Sometimes we anthropologists um, like to joke about the fact that there are as many definitions of ritual as there are anthropologists. But in my book, both figuratively and, and literally in my book, uh, my definition of ritual is uh, a particular action pattern that we undertake uh, regularly and either without any specific goal or when it has a specific purpose, there's no causal relationship between the actions involved and uh, the completion of that purpose. That is to say, for example, if I perform a rain dance, there's no causal relationship between my moving about and rain falling from the sky. Is this um, a manifestation of a pre-scientific world? Is this what we did, we humans did, in order to explain things that seemed inexplicable, like volcanic eruptions or earthquakes or life and death? Many anthropologists have highlighted this, that ritual perhaps was a, was a proto-scientific uh, attempt to, to explain the world around us. I would like to, uh, to see it in a slightly different way. I see ritual as a mental and social technology. And that means that even if it doesn't have any direct causal impact in the world, it can have very profound impacts um, on our psychology and our social world. You, um, there are different schools, of course, of anthropologists. Uh, you speak and write about Malinowski. Uh, Malinowski was famous for suggesting that ritual and anxiety were bound up together, and we use ritual to overcome anxiety. Is there a kind of functionalism in your thinking, Demetrius? The subtitle of your book is How Seemingly Senseless Acts Make Life Worth Living. Are we making these senseless acts consciously or is there something somehow in our dna that lend us to ritual thereby making life worth living there is a functionalist aspect uh, in my work um and and the work of bernstein malinowski that you brought up is is of course seminal in anthropology one of the founders uh, one of the great social scientists of the 20th century a, a polish uh, anthropologist who traveled the world and one of the first anthropologists who bothered to, to leave the, the armchair and then the veranda to actually go and live with the people he studied. And in doing so, Malinowski had this great realization that today is the kind of realization that every anthropologist has when they go to the field and the discipline of anthropology has, has had uh, as a whole. Uh, and that is, uh, we first go to the field and we're struck by all these differences. Look how differently these people behave. So we bracket the other as, as different. And towards the end of our stay, we started realizing uh, that people around the world are driven by the same needs, the same desires, uh, the same goals. Uh, 
and they go about in sim similar ways trying to achieve those goals. And Malinowski was very instrumental in, in that realization. Demetrius, I'm guessing from your name that you were born in Greece. What lent you to dedicating your life to the study of anthropology and ritual? Were there experiences with you growing up in Greece that made you want to understand a society and then particularly coming to America and living in an entirely different world? Is, is that one way to help you make sense of your own life and your own experiences? You're right. Definitely my, my own personal experiences coming to play uh, in my decision to study anthropology. I grew up in Greece uh, at a time just before the internet became uh, available and before there was cable television. So my window to other cultures was National Geographic magazine that I would go and buy once a month. And the documentaries of people like Jane Goodall and David Attenborough and Jacques Cousteau. And in those documentaries, uh, I, I saw this, this greatly inspiring need to go out and explore the world and to do this through two modes of inquiry, through personal experience, through being immersed in, in the things that you study, but also through a scientific perspective. And I think this is one thing that I brought with me in the study of anthropology. Now, ritual in particular, again, growing up in Greece, I would, I would see all of these exotic or exotic seeming rituals in the pages of National Geographic. And it never occurred to me that these kinds of rituals uh, could be happening in my own backyard. I thought that these were uh, faraway places, uh, that they were relics of the past that were about to go extinct, that certainly didn't exist in an industrialized society. And then one day I was amazed to find, as an adolescent, that some of these rituals, uh, including uh, bloody pilgrimages and firewalking rituals, were happening in my own country. You're... And this might seem as a contradiction to some people. On the one hand, you travel around the world. You're uh, as as a social scientist. You're you run the experimental anthropology lab at the University of Connecticut. You were, I think, uh, the president of the International Association for the Cognitive and the Evolutionary Sciences of Religion. You've written many white papers in this area, and yet you're studying something outside science, you're studying something that some people might suggest is beyond science. Are you confident that all human behavior can be understood in scientific terms, even the kind of behavior that seems anti-scientific or pre-scientific or beyond science? I think that human nature and human experience, experience is, is one and it's um, unified. And I think that traditionally in academia, when we try to study different aspects of our nature, our biology, our psychology, our culture, and we do this in completely isolated ways, I think we only have to lose by, by doing that. So in my own approach, I have tried to, to understand something about uh, the people who do this ritual that combines their own perspective, that combines my, my perspective as an observer, and also brings in um, scientific experiments. And it's very important to do this because by triangulating, by using these three types of knowledge to say something about the object that we're studying. Uh, unless we start positing metaphysical forces, we must expect that those the findings from these different areas uh, will be in accordance. Uh, they're, they're not always in accordance, but when they're not, this means that we, we need to probe deeper. We need to, uh, there's an opportunity to learn something and an opportunity to ask new questions. Is 
ritual, um, Demetrius, by definition, communal? Is it a collective thing? Does it come out of community? Many of the pictures that you show uh, in your TED speech, for example, demonstrate people participating as a group. I know you have a great deal of interest in the French sociologist, perhaps even anthropologist, uh, Emile Durkheim, who wrote about our anomie, our alienation in the context of uh, the crisis of the collective. Um, can one live in an atomized world that Durkheim wrote about and worried about and maintain a commitment to ritual? Or are those two things incompatible? They're certainly not. What we see uh, with the advance of secularization, and as at least Western countries are becoming less and less uh, religious, uh, we see that ritual is not going away. It's not going anywhere. Uh, if we if we're trained to see ritual, so depending on our definition of ritual, the way I describe ritual, we can find it in every uh, sphere of our lives. We can find it in courtrooms, and we can find it in universities and in sports stadiums, and in casinos, and in war zones. Yeah, I like the idea of sports stadium. You say that uh, English football or soccer, you're from Greece, so you understand that it's really football. football. A lot of that is simply about ritual. The meaning one gets from going to a game and supporting one's side is, is, as you say, ritualistic. Absolutely. And we have, in in fact, done studies in my lab uh, on this phenomenon. We have uh, followed basketball fans in the United States and football fans in Brazil for entire seasons. And we collect data both on their own uh, lived experience during the games, uh, but also their their physiology. And what we see is that through these ritualized displays, through the uh, synchronous chanting and the synchronous movement taking place in the terraces, uh, people are able to forge very strong social identities that are fundamentally different than watching the same event, let's say, on television. It's this physical co-presence and the engagement in those ritualized displays that we see in the terraces that creates this very strong loyalty towards one team and and, and and that results in this strong social cohesion that we see very often in religious rituals as well. Can rituals be corrupted? You had an interesting piece about purification rituals. Should schools be demolished after a mass shooting? But isn't a mass shooting in, a, in its own horrible way a kind of ritual? Ritual can certainly be corrupted. Uh, and I tend to see ritual, as I mentioned, as a social technology. And as every technology, it can be used for better and for worse. One of the best examples of this is when we talk about the power of ritual to instill um, group loyalty and, and strong group identities, We cannot forget that when we see a Nazi rally, for example, or a nationalist rally today, uh, those rituals too have the same power to bring those people closer together and at the same time instill hostility towards another group. But how do you make a moral distinction or can one make a moral distinction between the ritual of the Nazi rally or uh, the, uh, the psychopath online who tells his followers that he's about to commit a mass shooting at a school and the kind of collective rituals that that you write about and celebrate in your work and on your travels. Is there any difference? I I guess the moral distinction has to be drawn on the basis of the ideological system that supports and is in turn supported by those rituals. So it is not the technology itself uh, that can can cause things to go wrong. It is the... uh, 
the ability of certain ideologies to paint those rituals in in specific colors, ideological colors, and then use them to instill hostility towards our groups. Speaking to you reminds me of the, the ritualistic nature of the Trump presidency and of Donald Trump himself. We did a number of shows about people who followed Trump around. Uh, and it seems as if his political support or circus, whatever you want to describe it, was deeply ritualistic. No one actually listens to what he was saying. No one really cares about what he was saying. The whole thing was one long ritual. Does that make sense to you, Dimitris? Absolutely. And this connects to your previous question. Uh, to what extent is our uh, use of those rituals conscious and to what extent uh, is it instinctive? So at some level, uh, people should seem to be conscious of the power of ritual and especially populist leaders are very conscious of the fact that they can use those rituals to provide a, a sense of legitimacy uh, for their reign. And it's, it is no accident that if we look around the world, we will see that governments that lack popular uh, legitimization, so those leaders who are not elected, they always tend to have more flamboyant, more extravagant public ceremonies. Imagine, compare the enthronement of a king to the inauguration of a new prime minister. But how does one counter ritualistic politicians, whether it's Bolsonaro or Trump? Um, can one do it in a rational way, uh, a la Joe Biden? Or, or do we need counter rituals to confront, if you like, the bad ritualism of somebody like Donald Trump? This is an excellent question. And I think a lot of the time we might want to believe that we, we must counter those with uh, rationalizing the situation. Uh, but if we know anything about human beings, it is that our, our instincts and our emotions go way back in evolutionary time and are therefore uh, not always easy to, um, to curb on the basis of rationality. So I would say that, uh, that in some cases we actually have to counter them uh, with uh, equally ritualized movements. <coughs> Demetrius, do you think... Um... <coughs> oh, sorry, I was trying to, to avoid this for quite a bit. Um, Demetrius, do you think there's something in us which somehow looks back with affection or nostalgia at a previous time where ritual rituals and ritualism meant more, which explains perhaps our fascination with monuments like Stonehenge or the monuments on places like Easter Island. I've been to Easter Island. It's a remarkable experience. Are we looking for something in our fascination? Are we trying to get back to a more realist, uh, ritualistic condition that we once had as a species? I think that perhaps we are, or perhaps another way to put it is that we never left that uh, ritualistic disposition. We might think that we have, but there are always come times, even in the context of our modern, uh, largely secular existence, that we have this need to uh, to immerse ourselves in a crowd, whether this be uh, in the context of a, of a large concert or, or a big wedding party or a birthday celebration or a college graduation. These are the moments. In fact, some anthropologists have argued that the only time when a community is truly a community is when it comes together to perform collective rituals. If you think about it, the only time where an extended family is actually together as a family is in the context of some wedding or some, some funeral. 
the only time where a student body uh, comes together as a whole is to perform a graduation ceremony. And so there's something deeply physical about those kinds of interactions that is, has always been appealing to us. And that is not going to go away. And you suggest that holidays themselves are ritualistic, whether it's Christmas or Thanksgiving. These are our ritualistic days, our celebration. <coughs> Absolutely. In fact, there are studies that show that uh, public holidays that are more ritualized, when, when you try to alter those or when you suggest that somebody should alter those public holidays, people take moral offense of this. In your TED speech, you had some interesting scientific data on people's heart rates, suggesting that when ritual was involved, people became more energized, more excited, more engaged. Um, is there a physiological, um, a physiological explanation for our obsession with ritual? There is at least a, a physiological manifestation of, of uh, this phenomenon that Emil Durkheim, who you previously mentioned, uh, for what he called collective effervescence. In his own words, this is uh, something like a feeling of electricity that permeates individuals when they come together to enact highly arousing collective rituals. And Durkheim's idea has been around for about a century, but we were the first ones, my colleagues and I, to actually conduct a study to find traces of that collective effervescence in, in people's psychology and in people's very uh, bodies. So what we saw there, we conducted the study in the context of a Spanish firewalking ritual. So people gather in front of a very large, very fierce fire that is hot enough to melt aluminum, and they take off their shoes and they carry somebody on their back, and then they cross the fire. And what we found is that everybody's heart rates synchronize during that moment the whole communities. But the key here is that this synchrony is not indiscriminate. We map the social network of this village and we find that the closer somebody was to another person, the higher socially, the higher this heartbeat synchrony. And for those outsiders who have just come as curious spectators to watch the event, and there's a lot of those, uh, there was no synchrony. So we see just like Durkheim predicted 100 years ago, that there's something fundamentally communal about collective effervescence that goes beyond uh, the simple uh, mirroring of emotions that we could see if we all danced together, if we all had the same movements at the same time, for example. And yet, for all its association with the crowd, you suggest that ritual can be more intimate. You suggest that it can even be sexy. It can happen between two people or two creatures. We see this throughout nature. Many species have mating rituals, and humans too have mating rituals. Uh, after all, dancing is a quintessential uh, ritual. And in fact, we see that even at the social level, rituals can play an important role uh, in, in shaping our mating preferences. So we did this study in the island of Mauritius with a sample of uh, uh, Hindus, and we created dating profiles uh, of young men from that area, and we gave those profiles to young women as well as their parents. And we asked them to pick those who were most suitable for, for a date or that they would consider that they are more suitable as potential husbands. And what we find there is that those who perform more public rituals are seen as better uh, mating material, better marriage material, better dating material. This, we believe, is because participation in the uh, social rituals of a particular community 
signals one's willingness to abide by the norms of our community. So it helps it helps us just like in, in, in other species, uh, perhaps jumping up and down in the context of a mating ritual, signal some underlying traits of the dancer, uh, perhaps about their fitness, participation in, in those types of rituals in, in the human uh, context might signal some other underlying traits related to, to people's commitment to the norms of the community. Let's end uh, where we began with a need to, if you like, ritualize our world to make more sense. But I just wrote something about how we need to tell a new story if we're to respond to our environmental crisis. In terms of storytelling, Demetrius, uh, particularly around ourselves as a species and our fellow species, which we seem to be, for one reason or other, destroying, how can ritual help there? How can ritual help? in addressing the great existential question of our age, the destruction of our planet? One thing that a ritual does is, is create, uh, make things special. It creates special situations, special spaces, one might say sacred, uh, whether this be the religious sphere or some other sphere. So by ritualizing our relationship with, with nature, for example, uh, going on a walk uh, with our friends and turning this into our weekly ritual, this does create a sense of uh, of sacredness for nature. You've been heroic. You're sick and you're still doing this. You've performed your own ritual, Demetrius. I appreciate this. Your book, Ritual, How Seemingly Senseless Acts Make Life Worth Living, is a fascinating exploration geographically, conceptually, historically of the role of ritual in our lives. So congratulations on the book. Any other suggestions on books people should be reading in addition perhaps to the classics like uh, uh, Durkheim and Malinowski? What else should people be reading? Oh, these oh sure. I, um, I, I enjoy reading a lot of nonfiction. Uh, some of the recent things that I've read uh, include The Sweet Spot. This is a book by uh, my friend Paul Bloom, formerly at Yale, who writes about the pleasures of suffering. And, and I can relate to this book because a lot of what he says applies to ritual as well. Yeah, and that, um, I'd like to get him on the show because it, it speaks to the traditions of uh, perhaps masochism in, in some of the, the, the monotheistic faiths. So it's, it's a historic reality as well. It does. And the, the basic argument of, of this book is that uh, we might think sometimes that people are intuitive hedonists, but in fact, we derive uh, meaning from uh, struggle and effort and even suffering. Think of situations like climbing a mountain or running a marathon or even raising children. So suffering is part of, in the right context, is part of a life well lived.